Good morning, church. My name is Tyler. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Westview, and welcome this morning as we uh, continue in our series in 1 John. We've been asking ourselves a few questions over the past couple of weeks, and one of them has been around this idea of, of what does it mean to be a church, and what does it mean to be the church? And we've been seeking to figure out what it means as followers of Jesus to, to not love the world, but rather to be children of God. I think these are questions that our culture is asking, trying to understand, especially in light of all that's been going on over the past few weeks. Our media feeds, if they're anything like yours, like mine, have been flooded with images of, of violence and oppression and injustice, and not just south of the border in the U.S., but here in Canada as well. For many of us, we feel hopeless and helpless. We're really a loss of what we can do. I began putting this message together back on June the 2nd, which if you remember was this blackout Tuesday, this day where we were to shift our focus away on our social feeds from posting about anything we did that day, what lunch we ate, posting about cat videos or whatever. And it was instead a shift, a shift towards listening and learning, a shift towards understanding what's going on. And I've asked myself a number of questions over these past few weeks, questions like, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? What should I say? What shouldn't I say? Maybe you yourself have felt that same internal conflict. But to stay silent, to say nothing, seems to go against everything at least I read in the scriptures. And it goes against what our text says this morning. It's even interesting, depending on what translation of the scriptures you have for this portion of 1 John chapter 3, for some of you, the title above this text will say, love one another. For others, yours may say more on love and hatred. And regardless of the title, the intent of this section of scripture is to help us recognize that love and hatred are not recent developments. It's been a reality for quite some time. So the question maybe we need to ask is, so what can be done? But I think before we go any further this morning, we need to spend a few moments in prayer. So pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. Again, for this chance to gather at home, to worship you, to have church, to be the church, and to live lives on mission where you have called us. To love one another as you have instructed us from your word this morning. And so I pray, Jesus, you would speak to us, challenge us, convict us, equip us, excite us for the work of ministry, for what you are still doing in and through your church, your people. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So if you're watching this at home, again, on our website, we have a number of things in which you're able to download. And one of those on our sermon page are our sermon notes. And I just invite you, uh, if you're using those, to, uh, to grab those, download those, to, uh, to have them with you as we navigate through the sermon. Uh, our first point this morning I want us to look at is this idea of loving one another. Verses 11 to 15. Let's read them together, shall we? For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. 
Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. As John begins this second half of this chapter, uh, he shifts from where in the first part he began to speak of the difference between those who live in darkness and those who live as followers of the light, as followers of, of Jesus. And now he shifts to the quality of life that followers of Christ can expect as they live out this love for one another. If the first part of this chapter was the what, the second half of the chapter is the how. And so he begins in verse 11 essentially saying the same thing since he said at the beginning in the, for the bulk of this letter. For John, there isn't much that he wants to get across to his audience, and for us for that matter, other than a few key points. And as we've seen so far in this sermon series, this call to love one another is of the utmost importance to John. And so again, in verse 11, we read, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This idea of love echoes back to, to the beginning for John. And not just the beginning of this letter, as he instructs in chapter 2, verse 7, when he says, I am not writing you an old, a new command, sorry, but an old one. But he's also echoing back to his own gospel and to the beginning of scriptures themselves. Yet rather than setting up a story of how followers of Christ ought to love one another, John chooses in this portion of the scriptures to go in a different direction. So John here, beginning in verse 12, shares what would have been an all too familiar story to his audience of what not to do. And so in this example now, John shifts this focus on to Cain and how Cain took life, how he failed to love his own brother. In verse 12, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, John is anchoring how not to live in community, how not to effectively show love to one another. And he does this by bringing up to his audience what would have been an archetypal story. This is a kind of story that God's people would have shared generation after generation with one another to serve as a reminder of what it looks like when our hearts are not aligned with the very heart of God when we choose evil over good. And John then makes this transition in verse 13 to compare the hearts of those who are in the world, who are not following Christ, and what Christ's followers can expect. So pick it up with me in verse 13 and 14 and 15. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. I know that many of you watching perhaps this morning, you grew up in an era where Christianity was more or less the official, unofficial religion of Canada, or at least it seemed that way years ago. You grew up where it seemed like almost everyone went to church, or at least they went to Sunday school. And for those who found themselves in 
pastoral leadership to those at that time were pastoring churches. This was a position seen by many in the community and in the culture of, of something of great respect, of honor, of accomplishment. So let me ask us this morning, could we, see, could we say the same today? Could we say the same? Probably not, if you want to be honest. And I don't know about you, if you feel the same way, but maybe we're actually better off. Better off, let me explain. Better off because I think there's less of this cultural Christianity where you identify with a faith system simply because that's what your parents believed. That many don't see Christianity as a mere golden ticket to Willy Wonka land. We'd probably call that heaven. And instead, those who follow Christ now do so genuinely. They do so genuinely out of a life-changing experience with the living God. For John, I think this would have been at the back of his mind as he wrote this letter. What would have been at the back of his mind as well, I think, would have been words that he had written earlier in his gospel. In John chapter 16, verse 33, let me read it for us. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So maybe the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is are we seeing persecution? Are you, am I seeing persecution in my life, in our lives. In his book, Christlikeness, The Goal of Discipleship, uh, John MacArthur says this. He says, the more like Christ you are, the more the world will treat you like they treated Christ. Maybe you don't see much persecution because there's not that much similarity. It's a pretty powerful quote. It causes me, at least, to kind of check my heart for a moment and to reevaluate my own motives, my own actions as I live out this life of faith. How and what do our lives speak to this culture? How will this culture know that we're Christians? By our love? Look at point two, what love is in verses 16 to 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You see, we're in our first part of our sermon this morning. We looked at Cain being this example of what not to do, of, of how not to show love. John now here in our text shifts the example to Jesus. To Jesus as the superior example. Because where Cain took life, Jesus gives life. Perhaps the words of the Apostle John in his gospel ring true to us from John 10.10, 10, where he records Jesus saying, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
The thief came to steal life, to take life. But Jesus comes to give life, to bring life in abundance to the fullest. Verses 16 to 18 seem to act in our text this morning like a bit of a blueprint for how our lives are to be lived out. In verse 16, we see a call to live sacrificially. Jesus laid down his life, and so we should do so for others, it says. I think if we're to live out this gospel in the ordinary stuff of life, we're going to need to do so in a way where we put others first. Now, this might not mean that you need to physically die for someone else. We might not need to take the bullet, so to speak. But it does mean that we stop living a life that's all about ourselves. That we stop living a selfish life. And instead, in verse 17, the second piece is a call to live generously. If we have material possessions and see another person who's in need and we don't act on it, our text says, that we're failing to act like Christ. There's no question that for us in North America, we're rich. I mean, you may not feel that way given the last few months, depending on how your stock options have done in the recent economic downturn. But compared to the rest of the world, we're doing just fine. In 2015, 10% of the world's population, or 734 billion people, lived on less than $1.90 a day. Well, that's good news since that's down from nearly 36%, or $1.9 billion, in 1990. How our forecasters are saying that due to COVID-19 and some of the economic downturns and lack of food security, that this number will likely reverse itself in the latter part of 2020. But yet we're called to live generously as Christians. I recently heard of a family from our church who had plans to go on a Rwanda trip that had to be postponed due to the travel restrictions with COVID-19. And so instead of being able to go to Rwanda, they adopted a child through compassion. I think that's an amazing example of what it means to live generously in this time. And then in verse 18, it's a call to live boldly. We must walk the walk and not simply give lip service to our faith. This is one of those moments like Dale spoke out last week where where John seems to take a bit of a narrow black and white perspective on this matter. He says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So is John saying here that what we declare with our mouths, what we say with our lips has no value, no use for the cause of Christ? Well, if you just glance quickly at our text, you'd probably think that. But I don't think it's the case in our matter here. Because the scriptures contain a number of examples of of Christ himself, not just living out the gospel, but speaking of it too. The Apostle Paul remarks in Romans 10, 14, a great example of this. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? As one commentary writer put it, love that fails to take the form of action on behalf of others is nothing more than religious rhetoric. It's lip service at best. But before I shift our focus further in our text this morning, let me spend just a few more moments looking at verse 16. 
Let me read it for us one more time. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And I want to make sure we get the significance of what is being said here. Love equals sacrifice. It's not just our warm and fuzzy feelings. It's not just what you experience in the moment. This is the greatest act of love humanity has ever experienced. Why? Well, as Paul reminds us in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Church, I just want to make sure you hear that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us not because of the faith we have in him, but, being, but instead while yet we were still sinners. If you think about it, it doesn't really make sense, does it? It doesn't follow a logic that we would associate with how love operates, at least in our culture. For our society, love often presents itself in this way. If you do blank, fill it in, whatever that may be for you, then I will love you. Oftentimes, whether we want to admit it or not, for us, our love comes with condition. Our love comes with, with strings attached to it. There's something in the end that we want out of it rather than it just coming from us without anything in return expected. But not with God. There's no strings attached. This is the reckless love of God that we sing about as a church. Let's shift now to the final point of our text this morning. What love requires in verses 19 to 24. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. And so as we begin to wrap up our message this morning, I'm drawn to uh, verse 19. How many of us need rest for our souls right now? How many of us are burnt out? We're exhausted. We are finished with homeschooling our kids. We are done with Zoom meetings and isolation and working from home and, and everything else that has come at us in this season of life. We're burnt out. And so the John writes in verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If there is any feeling of criticism, of feeling less than, that for a moment we sense our hearts condemning us, we need to pause, church. And we need to adjust the lens that we're looking through. We need to look at things through the lens of the gospel. 
Because this is the lens that John is pointing us to in his text this morning. One author said it this way. We do not look into our hearts to see if we feel secure and then use this as evidence of our security in the truth. If our conscience is condemned, God overrides its verdict. This is possible for two reasons. God is mightier than our hearts. And second, he knows far more about us than we can ever imagine. As Romans 8, 11 declares, sorry, Romans 8, 1 declares, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, hear me this morning when I say this. When our souls find rest in God, then we know he can take care of the rest. When our souls find rest in God, then we know that he can take care of the rest. And so we look at this final chapter, these final verses in this chapter to see now what Christ expects of us as we live out our lives confident and secure in Jesus. And we read, and this is his command, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. What John is reminding his audience and us is twofold. First and foremost, to love God. That's what we're called to. To love God. And second, to love others. It's not really a new command, is it? No, in fact, it's one that has been prevalent through the beginning and middle and end of the scriptures. This is the sum of our spiritual journey. This is what we are called to as Christians. This is what we are to do as disciples. Author and theologian John Bloom put it this way in an article he wrote. The most loving thing we can do for others is love God more than we love them. For if we love God most, we will love others best. And hold on with me. He goes on to explain a little bit more. I know this sounds like preposterous gobbledygook to an unbeliever. How can you love someone best by loving someone else most? But those who have encountered the living Christ understand what I mean. They know the depth of love and breadth of grace that flows out from them towards others when they themselves are filled with the love for God and all he is for them and means to them in Jesus. And they know the comparatively shallow and narrow love they feel towards others when their affection for God is ebbing. This is why I believe that in all the scriptural commands to love God and love others, it is the love of God that is always first and foremost. Not that we love others less, but that we love others with the love that we have experienced by loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. It is then that we love our neighbor, that we love others in a way that they sense in their own lives the deep, deep love of God that he has for them that flows out of us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your great love for me.
for us. I thank you that you command us, you call us to love, to love you and to love others with a love that goes far beyond just emotionality and feeling, but with action. That we don't merely give lip service to our faith, but we demonstrate it with our lives so that others will see you in us. And I pray, Lord, for myself and for all of us as we go into this week, that people will see you in us and know that we are called to a life of love. Thank you, God, for your great love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.